So is being loud and proud the correct solution for Generation Z? Should they be focused on complaining and speaking out on social media? Or should they actually be focused on building solutions towards a better future? Loud and proud. One of the things I'm seeing with Gen Z is they are being a bit more activist than perhaps some of the older generations. And I think it's really important to be loud and proud right now because there's an awful lot of things wrong with the world and as you've seen in the film you know there's there's certainly a feeling in gen z that it's their job to try and fix some of the things that have gone wrong so i would say yes i would encourage loud and proud um the question is loud and proud where so loud and proud on social media but if you're just doing it on social media is that enough I don't know about you. I mean, do you feel that um, Gen Z sort of tend to do more on social media, but less actually out on the streets and, you know, or in person? What, what do you feel? Before 2020, I would say that Gen Z are more attuned to social media, more comfortable with expressing themselves on social media, shaping their profiles in that certain way, posing their stories and their posts, etc. But after 2020, I would say that I think a switch flipped and they realized that social media is not enough. And that's why you see, you know, Greta Thunberg on the docks or you see, you know, y youngsters throwing soup on paintings and such. I think they've realized that the digital realm is not their whole world and that the physical space is also as important, if not more important. Um, but just we, we mentioned the film. so. Tell us a little about I Am Gen Z. Well, it's interesting before we actually go there is I'm, I'm currently making another film. I'm making a, some other documentaries at the moment. And one of them I am actually, or I followed, uh, it's, I'm editing it now. I am followed for five months just off oil here in the UK. And one of the people you mentioned there is one of the soup throwers who is part of Just Off Oil. So it's that, that group. And um, super interesting following that organization and that group of activists. It's, you know, there's grandmas and grandpas in there, there's middle-aged people, but there's obviously a very large Gen Z community within that. And it's been really, really interesting to see um, Gen Z, how they're operating and what they're doing and, and how, how deeply um, they feel, how strong they feel about the cause and how dedicated they are there, you know, there's no laziness there. They are being really, really active and really going for it. Whatever you think about the tactics um, that the climate activists have, I'm seeing a really, really strong Gen Z movement coming through in sort of activism out on the street, uh, literally in front of my eyes by having had the privilege to actually follow um, that group for the for five months. Uh, so that's that I think concurs with a little bit with what you're saying about how Gen Z is not just being on social media now. I think the activism is moving into the streets. So I agree with you. What do you think flipped that switch for Gen Z to be more comfortable on the streets rather than posting to Instagram? I feel that there's a sense of we've tried lots of different things and it's not working. So now we've got to do something more and we've got to be a bit more radical and if we don't, I mean, a lot of, particularly with the climate activists, you know, a lot of them are saying, look, we, we actually um, don't want to have children. 
not because we don't want to have children, but we're worried about bringing them into this world and, and where it's going. And that's why I'm out there now fighting for um, to stop oil and gas and carbon emissions and all of those kind of things. Or I'm worried about my younger sibling. So I had a really interesting conversation the other day with, with somebody also from that same organization from Just Stop Oil. He was 21. And he said, look, I've stopped my degree. I'm studying at university, but I've, I've stopped doing that now. And I'm a full-time activist at the moment because I'm looking at my younger siblings who are 13 and 15. They can't do that at the moment. I can, but by the time they're my age, it's going to be too late. So there's this real sense of there's a, um, a, 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 a clock ticking and it's now got to happen now. And so there's this real drive. And I think that's what's pushed it out onto the streets. I think also with 2020, that was also when Black Lives Matter happened. That I think brought a lot of Gen Z out onto the streets too and showed that, you know, it could have an impact and make a difference. So so I think that the Black Lives Matter movement, Matter movement was a key player in that. And I also just think the the pressure clock, the time clock with climate crisis is is really driving that action. It feels like that time clock with the climate crisis intersects with Gen Z's attention span and the sense of they latched onto it instantly and now that's all they can think about. And I've it also is echoed in my friendships and relationships where people are really, really worried and scared and fearful to plan for the future. I mean, I, I also echo that sentiment for those Gen Zers that don't want to have children, not because they don't want to have them, but because they don't think that the world will still be around for them to have children. And so as a Gen Xer, is this a rational response from the generation? Is it kind of, you know, the immature, oh, I'm just going to make a big fuss right now. And then you realize five years down the line, okay, maybe I was just being a young person. It, like, how do you feel as a member of Gen X about Gen Z's response to this? Um, I, I don't think they're wrong. I think mm. uh, the trajectory we, on, we are on is really, really worrying. I think the speed with which um, the impact, the climate crisis is happening is faster than perhaps even some of the predictions. And we do need to do something pretty fast. And in, if we wait another 10 years, it's going to be too late. So I don't think they're overreacting at all. No. Um, as a Gen Xer, I feel a little bit of guilt, actually, or feel bad that this is the world that we're leaving Gen Z and that they're the ones that are going to suffer most. But what I think is also interesting is for the Gen X um, age group, it's not actually just going to affect Gen Z or Gen Alpha or ones to come. It's actually affecting all of us now, and it's going to affect even my generation. So there's a wake up call that needs to happen with my generation too. But I really feel uh, that Gen Gen Z have had um, have got a really tough um, set of cards that they've been um, dealt here. Uh, plus, on top of that, you know the COVID effect right. and having through that and all of the implications that's come from that uh, so yeah get, get out on the streets do stuff you know do do what you think is right but don't just sit back and hope for the best right is the message and you as a gen xer are one of the 
very few people that are specially attuned to talking about Gen Z because you've made a documentary called I Am Gen Z exploring Generation Z, digital health, mental health. So could you say more about the documentary, the thought process behind it, and maybe what you learned about Gen Z? Sure, yeah. When I started, it literally came from this moment where I think we've all had it. We were like, oh my God, I'm just obsessed. I'm always on this phone. Why is it? And um, I have a background of, you know, I was part of the sort of dot-com revolution when it happened sort of in the late 90s. Uh, I worked at Yahoo in the early days and that was an extraordinary experience. And, you know, at the time it was, it was an amazing company, an amazing organization to be part of because it was full of a lot of people who really like were there for the right reasons and really excited about the opportunity that the internet was going to bring. So, you know, it was going to be a, a leveling force. It was going to mean more people it could connect at grassroots level, all of these wonderful things that I think the internet and social media ultimately um, some of the positives it can bring but at the time I don't think we really realized what it was that we were setting into play you know the, the genie is very much out of the bottle isn't it and um, the addictiveness of it and some of the you know some how it's driven hate and polarization and all of the issues that are, that are covered in the film are perhaps things that we were a little naive to in those early days so when I found myself sort of 20 years later, also addicted, I'm like, God, what is this? What, I want to investigate that further. So it didn't start off as a Gen Z film. It mm. started off as why are we all addicted to this technology and what is that doing to all of our minds and brains? And then I had this um, sort of penny drop moment where I was like, ah, okay. One of the big shifts on this is when uh, the technology ended up in our pockets. So the launch of the iPhone and the, the first smartphone, and that's the point where it really shifted. And that's also the point where Gen Z comes in. And you are the first generation to have had social media in your pockets from day one. So at that point, it was super interesting to sort of study, well, how are their lives different from all of those that have, have gone before? So that was why it became a Gen Z film. But at that point, I was... Uh, of that kind of camp of, well, Gen Z millennials, they're pretty much the same, aren't they? And as I started investigating into it, I realized, no, actually, there's quite a big difference between those two generations. And obviously, there's things other than mobile technology that are driving those differences, you know, the environment you grow up in, the politics that you grow up in, all those kind of things. But technology uh, is a key driver to that, causing that, that difference and that change. So then I started, um, you know, really investigating and started to put myself in in your shoes. You know, how would I have responded when I was if I was 15 now? You know, I really thought the 15 year old Liz, how would she be coping with social media now? How would she be coping with TikTok? And I think I would have really struggled, really, really struggled. So, yeah, yeah that's how it came about. Yeah, yeah, I 100 percent agree with that. And. I'm taking piano lessons and I, I was just listening to this six-year-old talk about her TikTok account. And I was just like, my heart was dropping, like thinking about being six years old and thinking of a technology like TikTok, how addicting it is, how manipulating it is, all of the articles that have come out. But one of the things about Gen Z is that that kind of concept or notion is abstracted out onto every single member of Gen Z since 1997. 
like we our brains were plastically rearranged by social media so how should we be thinking about digital health now how should gen z aim to use technology in a healthier manner or think about technology that can lead to healthier habits with technology I think it's really, and this is true for everybody, not just Gen Z, it's, um, it's about mindful use of it. Hmm. So um, asking yourself the question every time you, you pick up that phone, why am I doing that? Or every time I'm posting something on TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is, you know, why am I posting that? Is this, you know, is there a reason why I'm using this now? Or am I just sort of mindlessly scrolling or... Um, you know, what is the intention behind it? And if you can keep almost, you know, a good little discipline is to actually have that little post-it note on your desk, you know, why? <laughs> why am I doing what I'm doing? And yeah. sometimes you can check yourself uh, by that. Uh, so that's, I think, super important. And I think it's the boundaries, it's setting the boundaries and uh, the important thing of sort of, okay, I'm going to work on this thing or do whatever it is you're, you want to focus on now. And I'm actually going to put my phone into airplane mode or I'm going to put it away in a drawer. I mean, it says in the film, this thing about, you know, even by having the phone, even if it's in airplane mode, having in your sight, it still distracts you. And here I am. I mean, it's sitting here right next to me on my desk right now, you know, and so it's just proof how difficult it is to do that. And here I am doing a podcast interview and I'm very, invested in the moment and focusing my time on you and talk, thinking about what we're doing but there it is in the corner of my eye so I'm going to now put this over there so I can't see it <laughs> yeah yep. you know I, I just want to I want to push you on this kind of advice we'll just call it that I've heard for so long you know just put the phone away put it in your back pocket put it in you know your backpack out of sight out of mind but how do we do that as more of our widgets are going into our phone? You know, we're using cryptocurrency on our phone. Our wallets are on our phone. Our IDs are going onto our phones. So is it practical to just say, we'll just stop using it? I know that's not what you're saying, but it feels like, you know, try to use your phone less. But if I'm trying to pay for something and then I get, you know, an Instagram notification, I'm going to click on that. I didn't want to click on that. Yeah. So like, how do we always be mindful of that when more of our lives are just seeping into this digital void? That's what I'm saying about setting boundaries. So um, I'm just going to turn off my uh, notifications on my WhatsApp. Um, this is a classic example. Again, you know, it's I'm it's very hard to do this. Yeah. But we need to all learn how to do this. And Gen Z needs to learn how to do this. And, and we've all got to find our own ways. Because I think what to your exactly to your point, a lot of older generation go, oh, just turn off your phone, just stop, you know, stop. It's no longer possible because the phone is so integrated into our lives and how we run our lives, how we pay, how we communicate with people, our business, et cetera, et cetera. So it's no longer possible. So we each need to set up our own rules and our own boundaries, depending on how the phone is integrated into our lives. Your example of, oh, I went to pay for something with my phone and then I saw a Instagram 
notification and you get pulled in. That's the classic thing. And that's where it's hard work, but we've got to do it. We've got to resist the urge. And that's where asking this why question. Why am I going to click on this Instagram alert right now? Is it because of the dopamine hit that I'm going to get that I'm being pulled in? Or is it because it's actually really important for me to know what's happening with this person, this notification? And the answer is no, right? Um, so if you can go, right, you know, I want to spend a bit of time on Instagram. Now I'm spending my time on Instagram. I'm doing it intentionally. And then that's it. And I'm not going to look at it for until tomorrow or whatever it is that boundary you set up. So we've all got to set up um, our own personal boundaries and, and learn to um, try and control our own technology use ourselves because it's so part of our life. It can't not be part of our life. But we, I mean, in the film, in I'm Gen Z, I ask uh, quite a few of the expert speakers, do you believe in free will, right? Which goes towards this question of, you know, to what extent are we controlling our actions? Yes, that's why I asked the question. So can I throw back to you that question? To what extent do you believe in free will? To what extent do you think you can control your actions and what you do and how you go about your life? I read Sam Harris's book on free will, and that kind of ruptured my belief in my ability to act according to my own free will. Um, I want to believe I have free will, but again, the, the evidence from that book kind of points the other way. But I, I do, I do see the problem for Gen Z and that it's so easy to use the technology. And we have never been told not to, to the point where it, it kind of um, causes friction. So just for example, when I'm in bed and I wake up with my alarm, I press stop and I'm greeted with all these notifications. So either I can, you know, put the phone down, get up, you know, work out, shower, and then use my phone. Or I can just, you know, spend the next five minutes, just five minutes. Okay, just 10 minutes. It's 6.50, I'll just spend until seven o'clock. It's 7.01, okay, and maybe I'll just spend until 7.10. So I just continue to push that line. And I've yeah. never been able to stop that. I've never been able to not do that. And I don't know, I want to take personal responsibility and say that I don't have enough willpower, digital willpower, let's say. But I also want to maybe shift the question back to you and say, is this something that parents should be teaching their children? Is it something where my parents should have sat me down? Because again, I am the most Gen Z in the sense of I got a laptop at 10 years old. So I got the MacBook Air at, at 10. It's not a brag, but it's just that's how I grew up. I grew up with for the from 10 to 20, a laptop was, you know, a couple inches from my face every yeah. single day. So is this something that parents should sit down with their child or children and say, look, this technology operates like this. This is what it's trying to do to you. This is what it's trying to get from you. This is how you interact with it safely. Just like maybe the sex talk, the drug talk. Do we have to have a technology talk with our kids? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think so. Um, I mean, I'm going to give a little bit of a pass to um, parents, to your parents' generation, because sure. they sure. also have been figuring this out at the same uh, at the same time. I think newer parents, the generation of parents that are coming along now, now have the benefit of hindsight. So they can start thinking about how can I help my children um, build 
positive habits around technology because it's all about habit forming right right so we were talking about yeah it's really hard not to get sucked in but um and you really have to work hard at that but if you get into if you build good habits then they finally will stick so if you can teach your children good habits by a doing those good habits yourself as the parent and leading by example because the right. parent they're just as dreadful as as all of us, you know, as it added, it's difficult for them too. And then, as you say, explain why and 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 put those habits in place. Then you're more likely to find that a natural thing. I mean, it's a really good example, personal example for me. Is I had to change my diet when I had um a, a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, and if I would change my diet, it was going to help that. It took me six months of doing that dietary change for it really to be fully wired in and, and normal and natural and quite comfortable to do. I've been doing that for four or five years now and it's no problem, it's easy, it's really easy. But it took six months of really hard work to embed that sort of habit, that eat, those eating habits and, and what I was eating into my, into my lifestyle. So we can apply that to technology too, right? So when you get up in the morning, resisting the urge when your alarm goes off to look at those texts will be really hard. Yep. But if you can do that successfully for six months, by then, or even three months, it may not take six months, but there is something about the six month being the tipping point, right? Then suddenly you just won't do it anymore. Or if you set this habit of I'm, only going to um, look at Instagram messages at 5 p.m. every day, whatever it is, you know, that's maybe a stupid example, but eventually that will just become normal. So I also agree with you, you know, this thing about um, we, the extent that we don't have um, free will, obviously we think we've got more free will than perhaps we have. One of the things in I'm Gen Z is the neuroscientist, Dr. Jack Lewis, I thought he made a fabulous point. He's like, sure, in the moment when you're reacting quickly, you know, you're probably not acting under your own free will. But what you are doing is your instant reactions are actually based on lots of things that you've done in the past. So your habits that you've, you've formed in the past and all of those things will often be a driver to how you respond in those instant moments where you perhaps haven't got the opportunity to think about what you're doing. So if you can build good habits, then in the instant moment when you aren't thinking all oh, the intentionality, why am I doing this, all that sort of stuff, because you can't always think that, you're more likely to act in an intentional way because you're basing it on all of the experiences you've had and done in the past. I mean, that's- Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, that is, that is a game changer. I would also like to, just to spice it up, push back against that just a little bit. Um, not what the neuroscientist said, but this idea of mindfulness in general. And just taking the example again of me in bed scrolling through my phone when I should be up working out. It's easy for me when I'm on my own to wake up and maybe stop the alarm, put my phone down, work out. I admit I have done that on some days, not every day. But it's more difficult when my girlfriend and I wake up and then she's on her phone. And then I'm like, okay, do I leave the coziness of the bed, the warmth of the sheets? 
and go and work out? Or do I just also spend some time on my phone too? spend more time with my partner? You know, it, it's, you know, mutually beneficial for us to be in the same spot, but, you know, doing our own thing. And then I kind of think of, okay, well, I don't have TikTok or Instagram on my phone, but everybody else does. So I'm like, I'm sitting there nicely while everybody's on TikTok and Instagram and seeing all the dopamine stimulating content. So how do we as lone wolves begin to build these good habits when everybody else is not? Do we talk to our friends about this? Do we kind of isolate ourselves from this? Because the, the social aspect is very important as well. I think it's got to be done collectively, hasn't it? It's a bit like, you know, back to the climate activism we were talking about at the, at the beginning of this session. You know, one person going out on the street going, stop, you know, stop oil, new oil and gas is going to get nowhere. Right. But if thousands of people are doing it, it's actually going to create a shift. So if you're not just your generation, actually, if all of us can go collectively, we were aware of some of the issues now. Not People are not unaware anymore. Mm -hmm. We understand what's going on. So how can we work collectively to change those habits and, and shift the dial on it? And it's not going to happen overnight. And like we've just already said, it's hard work. But the technology, social media, all those things, they're here to stay. It's not going away. So the only way we can deal with it is for us as human beings to go, we want to change our relationship with, with technology. So let us be the ones to force the change. And, you know, it's so funny when you're saying, I, I want to, I'm there with my girlfriend and I want to spend more time with my girlfriend, but you're both there in your digital world. So you're basically mm -hmm. not actually spending time together anyway. Right. So I think don't be scared to pull each other up and go, you know, well, why are you on your phone? Why am I on my phone? Let's try right. and not be on our phone let's try and spend some more time together in the morning but without our phones and, and do it collectively it's much easier as well to do things together if you're trying to do it alone wolf it just becomes hard but then you you know if you're doing it as a group as a community you buoy each other along and there's a bit of accountability too isn't there you know absolutely well, you're not going to use your phone um in the morning then i better not too right 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 no, well, I'll, I'll start implementing that. We have been good in the sense of whenever we're at dinner, we don't use our phones because we want to spend time with each other rather than yeah. with everybody else on social media. But again, yeah. it's it's those, you know, the, the bigger chunks are somewhat easier, but it's those little gaps where mm -hmm. it, it makes it so easy to fall in and ruin the habit. Um, what other projects are you working on? I actually started off making a feature documentary, which really came off the back of I Am Gen Z. Mm -hmm. At the end of I Am Gen Z, there's this clip from Greta Thunberg when she goes, if the system's broken, then change the system. And it, I, I just love that little line because it's, you know, obviously it's not that easy. <laughs> Um, but it's actually sometimes you need the logic of a 15 year old to, to, to say those words to you. And I'm like, well, what is it we can do to change the system to fix these things? And, and it, it really sort of sent me spiraling off into, you know, why is it the world's going in the direction it's going in and the rise of populism and yeah, right-wing extremism and environmental degradation, climate crisis, all those things, you know, what can we do to fix it? Anyway, this project was obviously massive. 
And um, then as I started doing it, a lot of the storylines started blowing up and became like films in their own right. So I have now actually find myself making six films yeah. all under this one banner. Um, and three of them are pretty much all filmed now and in post-production, but it just was the more sensible way. It was too much for one film. But the three of them that are really kind of well underway and hopefully will be released early next year, one of them, it's all about democratic, democratic backsliding. All three of them are, even though they're very different films. One of them is all about the right to protest and how that is being pulled back on us. You know, fundamental tenet of democracy is that right to protest, yeah? And certainly it's happening all over the world, but certainly here in the UK, our government which is very much more populist and that kind of stuff. They are really clamping down on the right to protest with specifically focusing on the climate activists. So it started, the new laws that came in started off the back of Black Lives Matter uh, when people started protesting there. It's continued in focusing on the climate activists because they don't want them saying what they're saying and doing what they're doing. And to its most extreme now, it's they're being silenced in court. They're not being able in the UK here. Uh, they're not being able to say why they've been doing the actions they've been doing. They can't say the word climate crisis in front of the jury. Otherwise, they're in contempt of court and thrown into jail, which is nuts, right? You should at least be able to explain why you did the action that you did. And um, it also happened to me when I was following them and I was filming them. They There was a group of climate activists who were in, planning to do a very peaceful protest and just reveal T-shirts saying just stop all at the, at the coronation. And the police swooped in and they arrested them all before they'd even shown their T-shirts, right? So first of all, you're like, wait a second, just being able to wear a T-shirt saying just stop oil should be you know, it should be allowed, right? Um, and But on top of that, they were arrested before uh, they even showed their T-shirts uh, and completely denied their right to protest. And I got caught up in that and I got arrested along with them, yeah, even as a member of the press with my camera and everything. It was nuts, right? So, you know, again, that's freedom of press, right? Another absolutely fundamental, you know, thing when it comes to democracy. If we don't have a free press, it's very hard to keep, your leaders and people running your country uh, to keep them to call them to account. You know, journalism is really, really important in it from that point of view. And I was denied my right to do that that day because I was arrested alongside the climate activists whilst I was there with my camera, which is completely nuts. So um, the right to protest is really, really important. So one of that's what that film's about, but it's also got a very strong sort of climate crisis theme to it because I'm, I'm focusing on the climate activists. The other film is also the right to asylum. It's happening, I think, in the US as well. You know, we've we've got a migrant crisis coming along, uh, coming along here, um, and a lot of governments are denying people the right to claim asylum, including my own government here in the UK, Poland, Hungary. It's very much a European story, the one I'm I'm following, and that's absolutely fundamental. And if you think about why the right to asylum came about, you know, the Refugee Council came about, all of those those laws, they came about after the Second World War and, and what happened there. And it feels like our populist governments and stuff are pushing back on that right. So that's the second film. 
And the third film, which uh, I'm editing at the moment, and I'm editing it um, at right now, in fact, is a different angle on it, but it's very, it'll be very interesting to you from um, the point of view of being someone from the US. It's actually, and it totally links into I'm Gen Z too. So in I'm Gen Z, there's a, a bit about conspiracy theories, theories and how dangerous they are, but I don't go deep into it. This film goes deep into actually how truly dangerous conspiracy theories are for democracy. It manifests itself with the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Mm. You know, that was driven very much by the conspiracy theories. And um, I've spent some time with some women who were at January 6th and who've been sentenced, um, charged and sentenced for their role in January 6th to understand how those women went from being normal, um, sort of regular women with regular lives to going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories to bringing them to the point where they actually were at the Capitol and went in and, you know, have become criminals because of it. So three very different films, but all looking at democratic backsliding and where that's going. I would love to touch on that conspiracy theory documentary and movie. Um, but just before that, just going back to the first film and documentary that you are working on, do you, what do you think is the cause of these cracks in democracy? It feels like it's been happening for a while. Maybe it's been inflated by social media, so we feel like it's much more exacerbated now. Why is it happening? What, what are your thoughts on this? How do we come back from it? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how we come back from it. Um, but um, I'll answer the question about when and, and why. I do think it's a relatively recent thing. It's, it's, a, it's a shift we've seen in, in the last sort of eight to 10 years. We, you know, the, we had Brexit, we had Trump coming in, we had other sort of populist leaders in Europe, Orban, you know, Erdogan, all of those. There's quite a lot of, there's been a shift towards populism. And at the same time, it's interrelated, this massive polarization that we're seeing in society on, on very and a lot of a lot of points. And a lot of that has been driven by social media. Right? So um social media has kind of made it worse because it enables us to be more tribal. With the conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theories have been around for a long while, they're not new at all but particularly under covid there were all these things flying around and before there might have been little groups of people who were starting to think these things but now they're able to connect through youtube oh everyone's watched the same youtube video and now suddenly you've got this mass grassroots movement of people who all believe the same conspiracy theories and are driving each other because they've been connected through social media and the internet now why are people feeling polarized? Why are people, um, you know, feeling like they're feeling? That has a lot to do with the way the world's gone in terms of, you know, you can take that right back to 2008 and, and the financial crash, which is when the American dream kind of disappeared and a lot of people realized, ah, oh, I can no longer afford to buy my own home. I mean, this is the other thing with your generation. Yeah, I yeah. was able to, you know, see a future where I would be able to put a deposit down on a flat, get my own flat, be a homeowner, all that kind of stuff. It's really difficult now. 
if you're Gen Z, to see that future, to even begin to imagine being able to buy your own home, right? So a lot of the, the American dream, you know, the sort of neoliberal uh, sort of world um, that, that was like, I'm, I'm a child of Thatcher and Reagan, right? You know, that was when this, this real big push to individualism and the neoliberal kind of uh, economics uh, really started to take off. I benefited from that, but it's, 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 it's finished now. And 2008 was the point where it fell off a cliff. So, I mean, you, you're all very young in 2008, so you won't necessarily have, have really experienced um, the, the crash, but you're seeing the results of it. Mm -hmm. And then you have 9-11, right? And then, you know, so suddenly the, the kind of way in which the world was meant to operate no longer is working. So there's a lot of people, all age groups, who are very frustrated and don't know um, why the world's going the way it is so you start to try and find ways of making sense of the world so you go onto the internet you find all these conspiracy theories you find um people who you know politicians or people with political agendas or agendas who are on there who are pushing a certain agenda and you start to get very polarized and then on top of that, oh, my God, you then start to layer in algorithms and AI and how we can be manipulated and driven apart more. Um, you look at what happened with Brexit um, and, you know, Cambridge Analytica's role in that and driving that. You know, you wonder, you, you, you know, you start to, this is, we're getting very layered again, but you can see. So I think technology is exacerbating um, a whole load of other underlying issues that have just come from where we are in, in the world at the moment. I mean, I would go one step further. It's not just technology, but it's, it's just social media. It's our access to other people in cyberspace. And so I want to ask you, how is social media even legal? It feels like there are no benefits to having this. Other than, you know, I think, no, you and I met over email. So, so what is the point of an Instagram or a TikTok or a Facebook? And after you answer that, I would also like you to steel man the case for social media. <laughs> I'm going to answer it by answering the second question, because I do think there is um, some value okay. in social media. Okay. You know, it's an amazing way that it can connect people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to connect before. But there's positive connections and there are negative connections. You know, we, we haven't touched on the mental health um, aspect of, of I'm Gen Z and how social media is affecting mental health. But I think this is a really great example. So, you know, you you if you are lonely or perhaps you're from a you're perhaps you're living in a community uh, where you're a little bit different to everybody else in your little in your village or your town. Right. Maybe you're you're part of the queer community. In the old days, if nobody else was part of the queer community in your little town, you had no one you could go to to talk to. Now, you can actually find other people who think like you or are like you or whatever, and you can bond with them and go, oh, actually, I'm not alone, right? You know, that's so powerful as a way of actually being able to connect people and realize that they're not alone. It can be really powerful organizing force so you know people are worried about the climate crisis or whatever it is um 
we want to do something about it. Well, actually, we can use social media to connect and build a grassroots grassroots movement to help us get out on the street together and do what we've got to do. So all of that's super valuable. Um, with the mental health side of things, that that's a double-edged sword. Because in one respect, if you are having mental health issues, you can use the internet to find people to help you. Whereas if you're stuck at home on your own and there's no one to talk to, maybe that's that's really bad. But then on the same at the same token, um, sometimes you can get into really dangerous communities talking about mental health, which can almost feed each other feeds it it can feed it further so I see you like um you're not sure about where I'm going with this because I don't think I'm being very eloquent about it no 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 please please one of the the things that so I I I really need it's really important to say that I think some of the fact that Gen Z Gen Z talks about mental health far more openly than older generations is really great it's good that we're talking about mental health and we shouldn't stop doing that But there's also this normalization effect that's going on. So if we start to talk about self-harm, when I was 15, self-harm happened. There were obviously girls self-harming then. It's not a new thing. But it wasn't normalized. People didn't really know about it. People didn't talk about it um, so much. Now, everyone knows about self-harm. And, you know, you start to go, well, my friends talk my friends self-harming or she's talking about it or people are talking about it online maybe that's something i should try maybe that's a solution for the anxiety that i'm feeling i'm going to try it um and it starts to get a bit more normalized and that's the that's where it's dangerous do you see what i mean about the double-edged sword absolutely it's uh both a gift and and a curse in the sense of it can connect us but it it can also connect us to the wrong things and it can no, it's so we have to have a conversation with Gen Z about two things, how to use technology in the sense of how to handle notifications, how to handle the constant dopamine influence on our head, on our brains and minds. I think it was Tim Ferriss that said, at least he, he made this realization in my brain that our phones and the social media sites that we're all on are engineered with billions of dollars to be maximally addicting. I never, I never realized that it's kind of, it's always been there as an implicit understanding. But when someone makes it clear to you that, oh, they hire neuroscientists to make it as addicting and as frictionless as possible for me to, you know, escape into that. Coming to the mental health side, it does feel like there is a silent epidemic going on in regards to Gen Z's mental health. And I don't know if we're talking about it correctly. So are we talking about it correctly? Are there things that even Gen Z are missing? Oh, um, well, I agree with you that there's a mental health epidemic uh, for sure. And I think it's been made even worse by COVID. Hmm. Um, So I'm very worried about Gen Alpha in that respect as well, not just right. Gen Z. Um, I think we, we're we only seeing beginning to scratching the surface of it as well. It's starting to come out more and more and more. I, I really don't know how 
we talk about this, how we tackle this. It, it, it worries me immensely. And, you know, I spend a lot of time with Gen Z, even with my current project. And I really see a lot of Gen Z struggling. And I'm not sure to what extent it is that they're going, actually, because we're more, because they're more open about talking about it and it's been become more acceptable to say, I'm having a bad mental health day. So I'm going to, you know, people, they're actually talking about it and saying it to uh, actually, there's just more of it. So there's, it's always hard to, to feel that. Um, but in my gut and just, just, experience i just feel that there's um uh, so much anxiety out there but it's not just necessarily technology that's causing that yes it's a factor it's a massive factor in it social media is a huge factor in it i think there's all these other things that are going on in the world that we've touched on earlier that are, are, are driving that and i don't know what the the answer is to that do you i i don't have a you know, well thought out solution, but just what you were talking about before in the sense of it, it, it connects us, but it can also connect us to the wrong things. And it normalizes things that maybe we shouldn't normalize. It also ironically normalizes the fact that a lot of people are suffering. Like we constantly see people are suffering from, you know, shot mental health. And so yeah. instead of asking ourselves, oh, is that happening to me? How do I reach out and seek seek help how do i contact this person to see maybe if they need a friend now we're being bombarded with every other post on an instagram story is you know talking about mental health and so mm. we become slightly immune to it we become slightly numb to it because that's just you know it's just there it's just a, an archetype of the site i mean for example on the subreddit world news the Ukraine war, it's like thread 695 or something. And then you have the Israel Hamas situation thread, you know, however long it's been, it's almost been a month. Mm. And so you, you see all of that, then you see the mental health on the social media sites. And then you were talking about, you know, this fall in democratic, you know, rights. And then yeah. we talk about, you know, the prospect of genetic modification, the metaverse. <laughs> artificial general intelligence, nanotechnology, bioweapons, the effects <laughs> from COVID. And so if you're a Gen Z on social media, you're probably wondering, dude, what the F? Like, I didn't sign up for this. And, and there, there are, there's no one to the point of the podcast and the, to the point of what we're trying to do. There, there's no avenue for people to listen to experts such as yourself who are interested in talking about it, interested in not just grifting and saying, oh, the world is going to end, but hey, this is, here's some information that I've curated and thought about for a long time. Do something with it. And mm -hmm. I think, I think that is, is a solution, just education, because again, not to be doom and gloom, but education has fundamentally failed past and current students. And it is going to be failing future students if we don't change how we're mm. administering education. But the internet is providing, you know, an, an incredible opportunity for people who are seeking out information. And also it's providing, providing an incredible opportunity for folks like us who want to provide 
accessible information. And that relationship, I think, is the most powerful because Gen Z, as you were saying, are hungry. They want to change. They are seeking out solutions. They are pulling in and connecting dots that most people didn't know exist. But yeah. if we're not servicing that appetite, I think that that is, you know, a, a, a big misstep. That's a massive opportunity lost. So more, more information that's accessible, that is relevant and, and, you know, holding their hand until they don't need uh, the hand, their hand to be held. Yeah. I mean, this is why I love podcasts and um, I'm really pleased to be doing a podcast with you because it's that is that longer form uh, type of content where you can actually get nuance into it. Because one of the other problems with social media is it's, you know, it's num short number of characters or it's a very short video clip in TikTok or whatever. It's very limited and you can't get any of the nuance in. And unfortunately, it's always been true, but it's doubly true now. The world is not black and white. Nothing is black and white. Um, you look at, you mentioned the what's going on with the Israeli Gaza Hamas situation. That has got so many shades of gray, but wow, look at the polarization we're seeing there, right? Yeah. And somehow there can be a middle ground where there's an opportunity to look at the nuance and understand all of the different elements that are in play here. People are going to be able to respond to it um, in a in a better way, but we're very quick to go. I'm on this side or I'm on that side. It's black. It's white, and you know, and that's one of the challenges social media brings. And that's why I love format of the podcast or yeah. or documentaries as well. You know that longer form thing, but a lot of people won't spend the time. They won't spend 60 minutes, 90 minutes watching a documentary or listening to a podcast. So that's it, the challenge. It, it, it's 100% a challenge. And I do agree with you that podcasts are incredible in being accessible and also providing a nuanced perspective and opinion. Um, it is interesting that people won't watch one video for 60 or 90 minutes, but they'll watch 100 videos for 60 or 90 minutes that are six to 15 to 30 seconds. Um, so that is an interesting quirk. But I have noticed, and it's interesting that we are here in the conversation, I have noticed that regarding the Russia-Ukraine war, regarding the Israel-Hamas war conflict, regarding COVID, um, regarding the crypto crash, regarding this surge in AI, these are massive opportunities for Gen Z to learn about the history about the deep intricacies and complexities. And I did notice a pattern where during COVID, so many people became experts in virology and epidemiology. They were able to talk about these things like they had, they're pursuing a degree in it, but they were just, you know, reading stuff online. And sure, you know, reading a couple of Reddit posts doesn't make you an expert, but it's still good. It's still, you know, avenues for information. Same thing with Russia, Ukraine, you know, they were able to talk about both sides and the history of the conflict and how, how it's, you know, maybe not just Russia's fault, maybe it's, you know, someone on Ukraine or, or, or vice versa, even in the Israel Hamas conflict. Now people are posting videos nonstop about here's, you know, both sides. This is what happened. This is, you know, what happened to Israel, all of that. 
And so as the world becomes more complex, it does feel like we are accessing information at an accelerated pace. Like the, the, the complexity drives curiosity. Do, do, you, yeah. do you feel this way too? Look, I think the internet is just so brilliant for um, from that point of view. And I, I go back to the um, uh, late 90s when this whole thing was starting out. You know, the fact that it gave access to, um, to information to everybody and leveled the playing field was what I loved about it and thought was amazing about it. The problem is now is the quality of mm. information. Yep. So, you know, if Auntie Mabel puts a post on Facebook saying this about Hamas or this about Israel or Zionism or whatever, um, Auntie Mabel probably hasn't fact-checked that. She's not really a reliable source. <laughs> but ironically, Psychology 101 will tell you that I'm more likely to believe something that a friend or a loved one tells me than a stranger. So here we are, we're reading all this stuff, um, but Auntie Mabel's really not qualified to be commenting or giving her opinion on that, but she is, my poor Auntie Mabel. You know, she's a vicious character, <laughs> no but you offense. get my point, right? No offense. Um, so the challenge for all of us, not just Gen Z, is, um, is to really improve our ability for critical analysis. So what is it that I'm reading? Who is the source? Where have they got that from? Hmm. And this comes into how conspiracy theories have got so strong, right? Is people are like believing stuff without really thinking about what it is they're reading. And then on top of that, not thinking about what they're sharing. Right. So it's like, oh, yeah, that's a kind of, oh, I read this thing. I didn't really think about it, but I'm going to share it and I'm going to tell all my friends. Right. And then you've shared a piece of information, which actually could be false information or worse. Um, so there's misinformation and there's disinformation. Misinformation is Auntie Mabel telling me something which actually turns out to be a crock of shit. Um, disinformation is even more worrying when you've got, you know, Russian agents or, or whatever it is, whoever it is, or um, lobbyists who are very sophisticated organizations with a lot of money behind them who are intentionally putting content out there, trying to shift us in one direction or other. And then boom, the polarization again. How we manage all that, how we figure that out is so difficult, right? Because, and the more, and then the more you look into, you start to analyze the content that you're reading, the more you have doubts and then you, and then you just go, oh, I just got to stop reading and I give up. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a total information overload and it, it is, I, I do absolutely agree. I, I think in, in my book, I, I put, I put this statistic where Gen Z don't want to spend 15 minutes fact-checking whether what they read or consumed is legitimate or not, but they instantly repost it if they superficially agree with it. Yeah. Um, and I also was just thinking that, you know, if you say something that I think is incorrect, I'm just going to go off and Google it. But what if that search result is also manipulated? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you. You say something uh, I find, you know, incorrect. So I'll Google it. It's a 30 second process. I'm not going to take five minutes while we're talking to like continue, you know, 
trying to see, you know, read other articles, read Reddit comments, you know, read other tweets. It's yeah. it's not enough hours in the day, um, right. absolutely. So I think the only thing that we can do as individuals is think very mindfully about what we're sharing. Um, don't share stuff just because we thought it was funny and, or, you know, if you haven't actually really thought it through yourself. Yeah. And, um, you know, accept that we can't understand everything and spend some time thinking about when we are looking into an issue that we're really interested in, spend some proper time looking at it and thinking about it. But give yourself a break. You can't look into everything and understand everything. And so we've got to get comfortable with the fact that there's so much information out there and we're never going to be able to tackle it all. But don't. But remember, by the same token, that we are all now publishers. Every single one of us is a publisher. And if somehow, you know, professional journalists have a responsibility to fact check, uh, to make sure that, you know, the information they're putting out there is correct and done professionally in a proper way. There are, um, there are implications for you and your career if you don't do that correctly. But us as individuals, we have none of that responsibility. We, could, we can just post willy-nilly and we don't get any, you know, there's that kind of thing. And that's the problem. So if we can perhaps all start thinking of ourselves as publishers, and thinking about our responsibility as being a publisher and just be a bit careful about what we're publishing. So publish, put stuff out there, but don't just put stuff out there without thinking would probably be my only bit of advice. And then the other bit of advice is to, um, it comes back to right at the beginning of the podcast, what we are saying about how you manage um, your technology time is also to give yourself a break, yes. you know? switch it off it's okay to switch it off there's so much going on in the world you just need time off for me the way I get my time off is I do sport right so when I'm out doing my sport I can't have my phone I can't be reading the news I can't be dealing with emails I can't be talking to colleagues all that sort of stuff everyone will find their own little way of switching off but just give yourself permission to do that and it's okay not to be able to fix the world all in one go <laughs> what what sports do you play Oh, I'm obsessed by tennis. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. You're in you're in the UK, right? I am. Yeah, I'm in London. Yeah. So, do you have a favorite football team? I'm not. I'm not sorry. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. We'll we'll cut that out just just in case <laughs> we rile up some Arsenal or Tottenham fans. Um, Liz, th this was a fantastic conversation. Where can we find you in cyberspace? I realize we just talked in about all the negatives. No, it's interesting. So I actually intentionally closed down all my social media, okay. except for um, LinkedIn. It was interesting. I finally decided to do it when uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter. And I was really worried about what was going on there. And, and you know what, I had quite a good handle, Twitter handle and everything. Like, oh, should I keep it? No, I got rid of it. Yeah. Have I missed it for a second? No. Did I feel this great sense of relief? Yes, it was wonderful. Really? So I just, yeah, yeah. It's really? funny, isn't it? C can you speak more to that? What, what what relief did you get from not being connected? Well, 
you kind of feel a responsibility. Oh, I've got to post on it from time to time and stuff because that's what I should be doing. And, you know, this is how people are going to find me. And if I don't do that, you know, as, as, a, as a documentary filmmaker and a journalist and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's important that people, you know, get to hear about my work and, and see it. And actually, the truth is, you know, it's so hard to cut through anyway, that the impact that of me being on Twitter was absolutely nominal anyway, but you kind of feel this like, oh, I should be doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, actually, it made absolutely zero difference to my impact on the world as to whether I had a Twitter account or not. And it just took away that kind of responsibility, that feeling of responsibility that I had to engage with it. I do still sometimes go on there for research purposes to look for it, but I no longer have a profile or identity on it. And I got rid of all the other ones like, you know, Facebook, um, uh, Instagram and TikTok. I'm not on those. I've kept LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's an important platform from a career um, business point of view. And, you know, it does remain much more business-like. It's not a slanging match in the way the other social media channels are. So I've kept that. And um, I have my own website. So you have liz-smith.com. And the other one is the website for the um, productions that we're currently making, the films we're currently making, and that's page75productions.com. So people can go there and see clips of my work and sign up to the newsletter. I do a newsletter. Um, great, do it that way and um, or find me on LinkedIn. But I'm afraid you're not going to find me on um, the other social media platforms anymore. Perfect. And we'll make sure to put those links in the show notes. Hey, Liz, thank you so much for being here. I learned a tremendous amount. And like your documentary, I am Gen Z and the others, I'll be sure to watch this over many times to, you know, learn about the other layers. So thank you. I've really enjoyed um, it as well, talking to you. And I, I've enjoyed you, actually some of the questions you've given me today um, haven't been the same questions that I've been asked a million times over. So I really appreciate the fact that you, you know, really sort of thought this through and, you know, how you think and um, how you're approaching this and what you're doing with your podcast. So keep, keep up the good work, I'd say. Thank you, Liz.